This is Irregular People. Today's episode is part two of my conversation with Gabriel Levinson, founder of Anti-Book Club, a renegade indie publishing house based in Brooklyn, New York. In part two, we discuss Gabriel's experience publishing Practical Blasphemy, the fictionalized memoir of author LJT featured in episode three of the podcast. We talk about ebooks and anti-book club's evolution on its stance regarding them, Amazon and Anti's decision to pull its stock from their shelves, German media firm Bertelsmann and its acquisition of yet another giant in publishing, bookshop.org, and more. I think part two of The Degenerates is of particular interest to readers and writers who want to know more about the editing process and how our choices in how and where we purchase books affect both the publishing ecosystem itself and our exposure to new content. I started off this second part of our conversation by asking Gabriel about his experience editing and publishing Practical Blasphemy. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was that was that was one of the more one of the more emotionally um, trying or, or or intense experiences I've ever had making a book. Um, and I knew about her experience uh, from back when it happened, and we had stayed in touch and we were friends. I mean, hung out for years too, of course, after. Um, but then via email when, when we were no longer living in the same city, so we couldn't hang out anymore. But um, she was telling me that she had written her experience as a screenplay. And um, she shared the screenplay with me and it's just, it was heart wrenching and, and, and fascinating and, and funny because she's so funny. Yeah. And, scary because she's able to turn on, on, on a dime like that um, mm. and take take her audience there with her. Um, and, you know, she she really wanted to see this made as, as a film and, and, to, and it, I still hope it is because it should be. She had a lot of um, music in it because music uh, was very, is very important to her and, and was certainly through, through her through her experience and very specific songs. Mm. And one of the things I said was like, look, I was like, this is incredible. I said, but I think you're going to have a tough time selling this because you, you want these specific songs and mm. licensing music for films expensive. expensive. Like that is not something that, you know, I said, if you were a known quantity, maybe someone, a producer would be more willing to take that risk. But if you insist on these particular songs, I feel like it's going to be tough. Mm. And she, to her credit, tried to revisit the screenplay and tried to like replace the songs with maybe perhaps classical music that has you know there's which are out of copyright and stuff like that. And mm. She couldn't do it. She did with some of the tracks, I think, but I think ultimately she's like, no, these particular songs are so important to what happened mm. and how I got through it um, that I can't, I can't change them, and I can't deny that these songs are the songs that they are. This is what the music has to be. So from then I was like, well, look, you know, if you adapt this into a, a novel, I will publish this, you know, and I don't care about the music rights. You know, I think we can, we can fudge it enough that as long as, you know, we were within the fair use bounds, mm. um, I don't have to license the rights to it. So, you know, would you be game for that? And, uh, you know, she eventually decided she would tackle it as a novel and she adapted it 
And then she and I worked together to kind of hone it and, and bring it, you know, to where it is today. But she, she, so she not only wrote the screenplay, she then adapted the novel. It's incredible. Um, she's incredible. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Incredible. And um, uh, that, that book is, is utterly, I think, I think it's, 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 it's terrifying. And it is uh, at the same time, somehow uplifting and, um, but it's an incredible, terrifying uh, dive into um, a psychosis, into a, um, a frame of mind. And we really wanted to do that. We wanted to, how do we take a reader into someone's mind who, who has to experience these things and doesn't, hasn't found a way to control these things inside them that, um, that you know, that, that they're, they're seeking that control, but they don't have it yet. And how do we do it in a way that doesn't that doesn't make a, a circus yeah. freak out of them, right? Um, or out of her, or out of the character? Um, and that was a big challenge. And we, we editorially we we hit on this really, I think, a really exciting thing that I've never seen done before, where these these internal thoughts that keep invading her when she's trying to to communicate in the world, or she's trying to just exist. Um, We've got these these like I, I, I call them floating dots. Mm. It's where this these intrusions come in and these staccato kind of just attacks of violent thoughts, you know, enter in, and that she's trying to fight. She's just fighting with herself, of course. But like, I think we represented it on the page in a really unique way with these weird floating dots and these occasionally these italics or these all caps. Like everything that you see yeah. in the book, um, none of that's left to chance. All that. I mean, that, now that's right. that's that, that's to be said for every freaking book. That's 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 why I have a day job too. I'm <laughs> focusing on the copy editing, on the proofing. You know, we're making sure these things, these ideas, come across the way they're supposed to. Yeah. So you know that that's not unique to practical blasphemy. But this stylization of this strange staccato attacks with these floating dots that happen in these thoughts, um, we had to find a way. How do we? How do we? bring the reader in and out of the present moment right. and in, deep inside her brain and, and deep inside this, this fight that she's got and, and all of these, these monsters for lack of a better term right now. Um, how do we bring them and make sure that, that the reader is as present as uh, our author, or I should say, as far as our, as our protagonist is um, so that you live that fucking hell that she's living through too. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you did it and I mean, I just was so taken and affected by it, and it's such a different reading experience than so many books I've read, and, and it, it's just incredible. And I asked her, we didn't, I actually cut it out, it wasn't included. I mean, we talked for three and a half hours, and I put out an hour and 20 minute episode, but I did ask her about that, and she credited you, just so you know. Oh, um, that's kind of her. The fact that she was so game, though, for this, for for these ideas, you know, cause I was like, well, maybe if we do this, and like, you know, and we were both trying to problem solve this stuff, but mm. you know, for a writer to not only in general to, to be open to their own creative work being adjusted or influenced in a way, but on top of that, it being a personal story yeah. that's being fictionalized. Like it, it, it's, it's the, the kind of, trust that she had to give me for that regardless of our friendship that's still far more personal to her than probably any friendship she has so for her to be willing to let that be 
you know, approached or manipulated in any way. Mm. But I, I'm, I'm grateful for that, for the fact that, that she had that trust and she gave that trust to me. And, and look, she said no when she meant no to changes that I was proposing, <laughs> and, you know, like, you know, she, you know, and that's, that's good. Yeah. Um, you know, because in the end, no matter what an editor does with, with a book in the end, it must be the author's work. Mm. It must be. And, and so if an author is like, no, you're wrong, (laughs) that's not the way it should be. (laughs) Then I, I, as an editor, then I have to step back and go, okay, it's not my place. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And, um, one might, I think some people might think an editor just proofreads, you know, and cuts down, but you Mm -hmm. were, you know, such a huge part of of the finished product and shaping. And I think with that one, it was, that was part of the, you know, I mentioned uh, sort of this, this part of it, like that, that it was very emotionally wrought. Like it was very on top of the fact that it's just so emotionally intense as material anyway, then having a personal connection with Mm -hmm. the author um, and caring about this person deeply and having to know that truth and recognize that, but then, find ways to divide okay but i can't be i'm not the friend right now i'm the editor Mm. right now and um and the fact that both of us found ways to navigate that um is is it's it's i i i I don't know what her experience was emotionally with that because for me it was Mm. it was it was it was very Rough, and I and I don't think that's a revel. I don't think that's revelatory to her per se. Although maybe we never discussed it together. Um, but if if I was dealing with it emotionally, I, I can't fathom how she was. The, the fact that she's able to remove herself enough to fictionalize it and and write it the way she did um, uh, is is, trem- is tremendous about yeah. her character um, and and something I look up to. I mean, I can't publish people that I don't look up to. Mm. I, I there's there's got to be. There's a level of awe in, uh, here in, in creating books. And as far as what you said, I'm jumping around a bit, but like whatever influence I may have had in the final product, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and the kind of what you're seeing, what you're learning now about the art of translation and things like that. The truth is, if an editor does their job right, if a translator does their job right, if a copy editor and a proofreader do their jobs right, a reader doesn't think about any of us. We shouldn't be thought of as you read a book. The only person, if you're going to think of someone, should be the author, and that's the way it is. So I think, you know, if we do our jobs right, you aren't recognizing that there might be other people involved in in shaping what your experience is, including a designer, by the way, too. Mm. Uh, if, you know, the way a, design, a book is designed, if we're talking about a print edition, um, absolutely will influence a reader's experience. But if it's done right, you don't think about the fact that the design is part of that experience. I even mean, I don't just mean the cover. I just mean even the, the margins on the page. Shit that like really no one would think about and shouldn't be thinking about if they're just readers. Um, but no decision in a book's design, and, and that means the interior too, is, is accidental. Mm. There's, no, there's no just drag and drop book design that exists. That I'm sure. Aware yeah. Is there uh, is there a, a line separator for this section, or is it dots, or is it nothing, or is it exactly? Yeah. Exactly. Um, it, it, I mean, I'm talking down to like the way a word breaks. So where you hyphenate a word because it's too long and it needs to go to the next line. Um, yeah. 
any of these elements are carefully considered Mm. and carefully put on the page. That doesn't mean typos don't still happen. I'm not saying that it creates perfection. And there's typos in every single book you read, and that includes anti-book club. Um, It's always weird for me as a reader to come across one. I'm like, how did this happen? Oh, and it sucks. Although I I delight in it when I come across typos in the bigger publishers Uh, because it makes me feel better as a smaller publisher. Like, okay, I'm not inept, you know? And, and, and because my day job is with one of these bigger publishers and it's specifically focused on not letting typos go through, <laughs> it, it, it kills me every time a typo, when I find a typo in a book that I was responsible for. Oh, man. Because that's just not, but it's also part of the beauty of bookmaking is that guess what, people, no matter how automated any of these systems seem to be, it's all human beings working yeah. on it. And in spite of, you know, despite the best efforts, I guarantee you a typo will happen. And we try, you know, the hope is that you you find them and you correct them for reprints. Sure. And we do. Um, and, and we do make sure. And you want to. It's like, oh, my God, I don't want that to still be a typo. <laughs> so no typo is ever just like blasé. Like no one's just like, well, that's just what happens. But, you know, it's true that that is what happens. Ebooks. So, well, how do you feel about them? When did you start doing them? Talk to me about ebooks. Uh, when I started Anti Book Club, I was staunchly against them. And I even had a tagline for Anti Book Club called Long Live the Death of Print. Because when I started Anti, it was right when ebooks were starting to be on the rise. And there was all this talk in the press about, you know, books are over. It's only going to be ebooks from now on. The print is dead. And, you know, that was one of the many reasons it's called Anti-Book Club as a company, um, was I was like, no, it's bullshit. Print is going to be alive and well. And, and I was exclusively committed to print editions only. And, you know, then I, you know, snapped out of it. And the truth is, uh, ebooks are just another way for people to take in a book. So who cares? Like, if, if that's yeah. the way they prefer to read a book, that's the way they prefer to read a book. Uh Myself as a reader personally, I can't read ebooks, yeah. um, but not because I'm like offended by them or some bullshit. It's just as a form, it's not engaging to me. I'm not. I can't get into a book. Um, it. It. I've when I read book books, print books, uh, it's very. Um, I can remember on a to the page like where a scene happened, mm. um, and it's it's really. Uh, and I can flip back to it even if I don't remember the page number. I can remember the general area where a certain shift happened and I can flip back. I, sure. And I need those tools as a reader for me, that that's part of my experience and I need to rely on that. And I, I, I just, if I put down it and I've tried and I put down an ebook and I just can't get back to it. Um, yeah. It's just, it's not in my face. I need a book just laying around. It's gotta be in my face. So that's me personally, that, that an ebooks just don't work for me uh, as a reader, but I, I, have definitely full, you know, 180 or whatever um, on my initial staunchly against it as a company. Um, I recognize that it's it's a it's a form that that works for for some people, and and if it means people are reading the book, then that matters more than my personal uh, ability to read them. So, yeah. That being said, I didn't really have much intention to make ebooks with Anti because I do still 
want to focus on the print. But this year, uh, 2020, is the first year that I've put out eBooks. I, I think I dabbled with it early on, uh, but I, I ended up taking those off market. Um, but now, uh, over this summer, uh, or this entire course of this pandemic, I should say, I've put out nine eBooks. So, um, I, you know, I won't read them, but you know, I do have one of the best people in the business making them. So it's, you know, it's, I've got an awesome team um, making them. So we're making them the best they can be, um, even if it's not something that I personally will ever hmm. read. I do like the um, sort of the consistent uh, cover style that's happening right now with them. Oh, yeah, that's cool. That's all. Um, the, the designer for those ebooks is uh, John Gall, okay. and he's just, just an incredible artist. And um, yeah, that was his whole, his whole concept, this abstract, you know, take on things. And I love it. I love it so much. I mean, they're, they're, these, the, those, those ebook covers, you know, if I ever get the money to make, you know, paperback editions of our books, you know, for the ones that are hardcover, um, I would love to issue those as paperback editions, but mm. you know, that's one of the limits of anti is that even if a book sells well, I probably can't reprint it. Right. So like, you know, it behooves people, if you're interested in an anti-book club book, just buy it because it's probably never going to come back into print. Not because I want it that way, but because financially it's the likely. Whether you're paying $9.99 for an ebook, $49.99 for a print book, like it's not about, it's as much about the thing as it's not about the thing, if that makes any sense. Yeah, well, yeah, it's about taking in the the piece of work and doing it however however you want to do yeah. it. I you know I I gotta hold it in my hand and touch it. And I can't yeah. personally. I just if I stare at a screen too fucking long, I'm done. I don't like reading on a screen. My eyeballs. Well, there's that too. Like I read on a screen news all the time. That's that's how I get my news is by reading you know through my phone. I can't do podcasts. Like I don't. I know it's a form that's wildly popular. Case in point, we're talking on one right now, but I'll never be able to listen to this. And and not because I don't respect the form, but because it's just my brain doesn't focus. It doesn't, I don't know. I think I need a visual. Mm. And it, it, it's it's something that, I think another thing that bothers me about podcasts is I'm like, oh my God, please stop with the little music interludes. Just get to the point. Like, I feel like these fucking podcasts, these like true crime ones, you know, I tried to do serial and I tried to do, and it's like, I'm sitting here like, I'm going to be dead before this podcast is over. <laughs> I, I get it. Can we get to the next point that you're trying to make, please? And that's one, you know, in my, in my forays to try to listen to podcasts, I delighted in that little button I could press that speeds it up like two times fast. Mm -hmm. I only, when I was trying to listen to podcasts, I only listened to them sped up like that. Um, because I pushed I, the, the whole NPR, like, hmm, let me quietly assess this. And that's when I took a turn, when I went down the path of the briny bramble. And that's when Gabriel took a turn and he went down the path of the briny And it's bramble. like, I, I, shut up and tell me what you're trying to tell me. I love it. You know, like, that's why I'd rather read, you know, I, you know, I'd rather read an essay or a story or, you know, a journalistic uh, I mean, like a news news article or something like that, and listen to 
uh, a podcast about something. It's just, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm, I am making fun of it, but I'm well aware how in the minority I am and that I really am only speaking for myself. I was recently, I recently had the opportunity to apply to be on the board for the National Book Critics Circle. Hmm. And they wow. just went through kind of a huge upheaval. I mean, it, it was open to anybody who wanted to apply. It's not like I was special, but it was, it was brought to my attention that one could apply. Hmm. Um, and I spoke with someone who was representing them and, you know, kind of talking about my interests and why, you know, maybe I could be a valuable voice on that board or not. Um, but I brought up to them one of the things that bothers me the most about book criticism. And this probably applies to any realm of criticism, but it bothers me so much that book critics give so much room and attention to books published by the biggest publishers. Mm. And the reason I say that isn't because those books aren't deserving of criticism or review or whatever you want to call it, but those guys, the big six, currently the big five, soon to be the big four with this acquisition of Simon & Schuster, they don't need that platform. That's free press for them, and they have literally all the money in the world. They've got the money to promote a book. They've got the money to publicize a book. They've got the money to market a book. They've got the money to get copies in every critic's hands. They've got the money, the money, and the money to raise awareness. Whereas indie publishers, such as Anti-Book Club, and I won't name others because I shouldn't speak for them, but I believe this is probably true. I have zero money for marketing. And other indies might have budgets for it, but they aren't gonna be on the scale of like Penguin Random House. And it's insane to me that critics keep boosting the platforms of those who have the means to boost themselves. What is that? What good comes of that? Let them, let them spend their endless money uh, to support. And, and, I, and I mean that, like I, I don't begrudge authors who are with big houses. Good, get that money, get that attention. Yeah. But you don't need, you don't need uh, an article running in book forum or in, in, in the New York Times book review uh, or, or wherever else, the very few places that still do book reviews, by the way, very few. And the fact that there's even fewer places to get your books reviewed, the fact that they keep, you keep getting reviews for the largest platforms possible, I think is an insult to literature and to the, the, the wildly diverse set of books that are out there that are never noticed mm. because there are so few outlets to get noticed and most of them are being taken up by the big guys. And Obviously, there are some faults there because, again, I, I do acknowledge there are great books published by these big publishers, and they absolutely deserve word count for criticism. Mm. So I'm not saying that what I'm suggesting is some clean, full cut, but I do believe there needs to be a massive shift in priority and that book critics should give deference to the indies. And that doesn't mean they should fully exclude the big houses but stop defaulting to the big houses. Yeah. Stop this madness. It's, it's just disgusting. And I don't understand it. They don't need that attention. Their books will sell just fine without it. 
And, and those of us who struggle to get any attention, who need the press to recognize us, who need even a I would love a bad review. At least it means we got a review. You know, we've gotten pretty good reviews the few times we've gotten press attention, but, you know, I need any attention at all, mm. but I keep not getting it. And I, and I can't explain it. And I don't know why these books are worth criticism. They're worth reviews. They're worth space. They're worth interviews. Um, but I don't have the means to shove it in their faces. Right. And I think, I think book critics need to, or the, you know, perhaps the National Book Critics Circle or any other association of critics, whatever they may be or how they exist, whatever that association is, um, I believe there needs to be a sea change here in how criticism is approached. Hmm. And there needs to be a deference to those who don't have the means to get the word out, but are still putting out literature that should be recognized. But th this, this, this does sort of connect to that other topic of Bertelsmann acquiring Simon & Schuster. Bertelsmann, for those listeners out there, um, is the parent company of Penguin Random House. Um, they're a German-based company, massive media conglomerate, um, and just piles of money. So they're about to acquire, I think it's officially going through unless there's some intervention, you know, I don't know, called a monopoly. <laughs> um, but they're about to acquire Simon & Schuster, which will give them, I think, a third of the world's market share in publishing. I think um, they're claiming like 3% or some shit, some article I read. I'll have to fact check myself. It's it's so massively insane that this is being allowed to happen, that this, this merging is being allowed to happen. I mean, it already happened once. They already, right. Penguin and Random House were separate companies, and now they're Penguin Random House. And Bertelsmann was responsible for that. And now they're acquiring Simon & Schuster. Um, and it's, you know, one thing that they claim is that every imprint and publishing house under their belt is going to maintain its autonomy and their, their independent streak and their own style and their own voice. And they're not going to infringe. They just happen to be the financers of it all. Mm. Um, and, and, and maybe uh, to a point that's true. Um, but I just think it's, we're stifling innovation here. We're stifling the ability for diverse literature to happen when it's all being funded by the same company. Yeah. And the control that that has, I think there's already a lot of pieces out about, uh, you know, think pieces that have already hit about the fact that, you know, this is going to damage authors because right now the way an author kind of makes their money is if their book goes up for auction, let's say they can be pitted against different publishing houses that have to raise their offers. And if it's all the same company, where's the, where's the, uh, what do they have to, they don't have to do anything. They own the whole field. So there's, there's no more, you know, trying to one up the other with through bids. Um, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but that's not, uh, that's not off track. Like, mm. If you're, 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 this is what a monopoly is. You're eliminating the competition. Now authors are going to be getting lower advances, you know, from these bigger houses, potentially. Um, I just wow. think it's so dangerous. The more these bigger houses winnow down, and by the way, and this, this will set me off on another tangent, so I'll avoid this, but the rules that I have to play to get my books recognized were designed by these bigger houses. I'm playing by the rules of the people with bottomless pockets and I can't compete. So I already can't compete with what's out there financially. Mm. And now they're just going to be one big playground of, you know, single-minded 
entities. Like it's just, it's, it's, it's scary and it shouldn't be happening. It's one more merger. And, uh, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really, it's greatly concerning. Let me just go down the path of the Brownie Bramble here again real quick. When I talked to LJT in episode three, she mentioned Gabriel's tenuous relationship with Amazon. So I asked him about that. For years, first off, Amazon's take, their cut, um, is larger, for, for at least with me. I don't know what their deals are, if they're different with other publishers, but mm-hmm. certainly with me, um, their percentage that they take is bigger than what bookstores take. They, they were getting, which means they were getting the majority of the sale. Wow. Um, and I accepted that for a few years because everyone's, everyone buys their books on Amazon. Yeah. And it's just, it's, come on. I mean, it's true. And uh, I knew that was an important place to be visible. Um, and uh, again, it's my job to get these books read and yeah. sold, but also read. So I accepted their truly outrageous cut that they take, uh, which I don't think legally I'm allowed to mention, but they certainly, oh, I can, really? well, I, I presume, or maybe it's just not, I don't know. I don't think you're supposed to like mention, you know, contract details, but, sure. um, but I, I don't think there's anything illegal to say that I was getting screw job financially, <laughs> but I was accepting it because it's Amazon and that's, you know, people see legitimacy in you being on there. Sure. Fine, fine, fine. For a while that was fine. But then I was getting, uh, it's very common, and this isn't just Amazon, returns are a common thing that's part of publishing. You get There's a returns process. Bookstores can return uh, usually up to six months. They can do full returns of a book and get their money back mm. uh, if it hasn't sold. And, you know, Amazon is no exception. Um, the problem that I was running into is I was accepting of the fact that I was losing on every sale financially, but at least the books were selling. And to Amazon's credit, and, and truly to their credit, they were reordering consistently, which Uh, A lot of bookstores I have to hound to reorder. And Amazon pays on time. So again, I hate to give them any credit, but they were very good about consistently reordering stock and uh, about consistently paying when money is due, Hmm. Um, which is truly to their their credit. Uh, Never mind the fact that I'm losing every time I sell a book through them financially. At least they pay the pittance that they owe me. The problem was that, or the what exacerbated my issue financially with them was that I was getting returned books from them, returned stock that they were saying was sitting around in their warehouse and they had to return because it wasn't selling, but it was damaged. They were returning them damaged to me. Now, were they damaged because they sold them to somebody and that person returned them damaged and then I got, I don't know, or was it damaged because they were sending it to me in bubble mailers, you know, hardcover books with just little plastic wrap around it. Um, you know, those, those Terry Southern, the, the yours in haste and adoration, which is the Terry Southern letters collection is a $45 hardcover coffee table book um, of which only 500 copies were printed and, and probably will never be reprinted. Uh, And when they were returning those copies to me damaged because they're bent up corners because they didn't have the decency to ship them in a box the way I shipped them to them. Um, now I'm getting stock returned to me that I can't resell. So I'm losing not only financially, but now I can't even do anything with this damaged merchandise because I, I can't sell it to anybody at, you know, the way it is. And I've only got limited stock. So due to the fact that I have limited inventory and that's for financial reasons, and I can't for financial reasons replace them. And I certainly can't for financial reasons do anything with the money I'm getting from Amazon with them. Um, <laughs> 
I tried for years to renegotiate the terms, whether that mm-hmm. meant, um, hey, our books aren't returnable anymore. Therefore, if they get damaged, that's on you. Uh, or if it was just a, hey, can we just at least, can you at least take a percentage that all other booksellers do? You know, mm-hmm. that's fine if that's the case. Like there were all these things, nothing I expected to have happen was out of, was an extreme thing. And I tried for years to reach the right party. This wasn't just like a, I'm upset with Amazon, I'm pulling all my inventory. This is years of buildup of, of attempts to change the situation uh, behind the scenes. And it's it came to a head. And before the pandemic hit, I made a decision to pull all the print editions from Amazon. Not because that was threatening to Amazon, but because that was my only card that I could play. Yeah. The very few sales that happened, hey guys, you can no longer take money from me until you're willing to, to, to give me a, a better cut or treat these books in a better way. Yeah. Um, and, and again, maybe that's, you know, I, I don't fault individual workers at Amazon for the way these books arrive damaged. It's just, they don't have a process in place that, that protected these books in transit. Mm. And I, the only thing I have, and I think I said this very early on in this interview, um, is my credibility. So if there are damaged copies being circulated, that doesn't reflect on Amazon, that reflects on me. That's the difference of someone buying another book from me or not, I believe. So I take care when I ship my books. So right now, I've there is no, I, I'm letting ebooks be sold on Amazon and I don't care. That's their platform that they created. So fine, take your cut, give me my cut. I don't have to risk my inventory that way. So the ebooks, I'm fine with being sold there. And eventually all the ebooks will be available there. But the print books, I can't afford to let Amazon keep destroying what I have. So until they're willing to play nicer, and look, I want them to be available there. People like buying their books on there. I recognize that. Um, but until Amazon is willing to work with me on terms that uh, benefit both of us, um, I, I can't hmm. let my books be available there anymore. So oh. they're right now, um, other than a handful of indie stores throughout the country, pretty much exclusively available through Anti Book Club's website. Well, thank you for that. And um, I think it's important because, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of us just don't know, you know, I mean, we literally just don't know. <laughs> and mm-hmm. we, we, you know, consumers are, they want, they're wanting a little, you know, a little bit to be more conscious and more aware. And, and at least in my circles, there is something there where people are like, order, or, you know, order independent, order independent, go to your, go to your local bookshop and etc. But two things on that one, people don't understand the next level, which is indie publisher. No one knows. I mean, the, the casual reader, the normal reader, doesn't know anything about publishing houses whatsoever. They're right. just or, looking or for imprints. Or right. imprints. They don't know what, right. yeah. So the, the, the average consumer doesn't know the deal. And, and, and the words that out there like, order from indie publishers too, we don't even know about you. So... You sent out an email to your list that I'm on that mentioned something like that, like, hey. Yeah, so that's, yeah, that, that was specific to um, this website that's popped up called bookshop.org, um, which is, it's kind of presenting itself as like an Amazon killer for books. And they, they you know, when you buy through bookshop.org, it actually supports independent bookstores. Um, which is great. And on the face of it, it's pretty awesome. And it's pretty righteous. And uh, I think Andy Hunter is the guy behind it, and he's the guy who he's one of the founders of Electric Literature, which is an awesome site. 
Um, and he also is behind another, I think, really cool literary thing that's out there. He's, he's cool. He's very inventive. And, and I, I believe, you know, I don't know him as a friend or anything, but I certainly am aware of his work. And I, and I do believe that he's out to, to do right by bookstores and by publishers and by authors. So it's weird to say something negative about this project, but bookshop.org, which is being hailed in the press as this Amazon killer for books and um, where you should go and all that. It's true to a point. And the point that's problematic for me is that the only books that you can buy through bookshop.org are from one distributor. And oh, there's okay. book distribution is a whole other podcast, yes. right? So it's from what it's from, you know, arguably the largest book distributor in the world. Um, but it's still one distributor. So the only books that you can find, which to be clear, there's no shortage of them because it is one of the largest distributors. Hmm. I don't think I don't think the average reader is going to find themselves wanting as far <laughs> as the books they're looking for. Okay. But what they should be aware of is not every publisher is represented through bookshop.org because they're only with one distributor. And there are many distributors for books out there. Hmm. And there are a few distributors that are exclusive for indies. And so I think the way I framed it in my newsletter that, that you would have received is that you know, your favorite weird little indie presses are not going to be found on there. Mm. So bookshop.org is good. And I would definitely say, please buy your book through that before you buy your book through Amazon, for sure. But recognize that those aren't all the books that are out there. Right. And one of the problems I have with it is that it says it's championing indie bookstores. But one of the beautiful things about indie bookstores is that each of them are tailored to their community. In each of those stores, the inventory that you find in those stores, whether you find it in Ohio or New York City, wherever it may be, like any of these, that inventory is by the people who staff those stores and they know their community and they know literature and they know to bring in the books that are a little different, maybe sometimes off the beaten path, but they know what speaks to their readers and their community, or they get special ordered because a reader comes in like, hey, have you heard of this publisher? I'd love to read them. And then they'll order it from that publisher if they weren't carrying them before. So oddly enough, even though it's supposed to be boosting indies, and it is, money is going to indie bookstores. So it is important and it's a good place to buy your books from. It's weird to talk out of both sides of my mouth about this. No, but, no, it's good. But no one else is mentioning this, that it's still limiting the books that you can discover. And I and, and, and to me, it kind of betrays what an indie bookstore is, which is a carefully curated selection mm. that speaks to their community. So how is it carefully curated selection when the only books you can find are from the world's largest book distributor. And let me tell you, I'll never be with them because they have a baseline of sales that they expect that I'll never be able to have. So oh, I can't wow. get with that distributor because their expectations for sales before they even sign me on are just impossible for me to meet for many, many reasons. And I don't fault them for that, but it does mean that they are a monolith. And it does mean that you just... <laughs> Buy your books direct from the bookstore. That's mm. where your money is going to do the best support for any bookstore you love. Mm. Call them up. If the book you want isn't on their website, and, and I definitely blame bookstores for this. Many of their websites are just pitiful yeah. and they didn't catch up to speed and they should have. And that's one of the good things that bookshop.org does. It's unified a look and a site that allows you to kind of navigate and have a decent experience as someone online. Um, but that being said, if one of your favorite shops 
is in, you know, two miles away from where you live. And obviously you can't go there and browse their shelves anymore. If there's an anti-book club book that you want and you don't see it on their website, call them. Hmm. Whether it's anti-book club or not, all bookstores can special order a book that they don't stop. Hmm. And they they don't charge you extra. You're going to get the same damn book. Hmm. And you may suddenly be bringing anti-book club into that bookstore when it wasn't there before. Um, because they may not be aware of it because I don't have the money to raise awareness like that. So whether it's anti-book club or not, I really don't mean to plug me. I just mean to say um, you should buy direct from your favorite bookstore if you care about them staying alive. Mm-hmm. There's no middleman when you buy direct from them, or the middleman at least is less. Um, and so if it's Books or Magic in Brooklyn, you know, which is an awesome store, buy it from Books or Magic. Don't buy it from Books or Magic through bookshop.org. Mm. Like, they don't take a huge cut, but they still take a cut. So why are you doing that? Just go straight to the source. And the beautiful thing is, is unlike bookshop.org, Books or Magic or whoever it may be can order books that you may not see otherwise listed. And that does a lot more for the ecosystem than, than amazon.com or bookshop.org. Like mm. um, as, 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 and as much of a, as reasonable the progress is, it's good that bookshop.org has happened but it's got kinks in its system. And one of them is that it's limiting you to one distributor's catalog. And I think, you know, buy it from your bookstore and you can have access to every book that's out there. How do you recommend I go about discovering books, period? Or rather, question mark. And also, um, how, how you know how do I go about discovering books that I might not otherwise find because they're from indie publishers? Like, are there some websites I can go to, some people, some curators, some places? I mean, I, it's a, those are great questions. And in the before times, I would say just go to a bookstore. Right. Go to go to a used bookstore as much as you're going to right. uh, an indie store. That's what I would um, usually do. Yeah, and that's and that's how I would discover books. And that's just browsing the shelves with no ulterior motive and let, let the spines jump out at you. Like that's one of the ways I discover books that I otherwise would never have had in my life is I just take a chance on books, especially in a used store where it's only going to be a few bucks on pocket. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that was my go-to advice was just go, go to a store. Um, Talk to your bookseller at an indie store and ask them like, Hey, these are the kind of books I love. Are there others that you think because the people that are working at these stores love books there's no one at an indie bookstore working at any store that's just casually there they love books that's why they're there and and i i just think like engage them in conversation mm. and they are knowledgeable they know literally they know books they're obsessed so if you start talking to a bookseller like hey some of my favorite authors are this this and this is there anything I'm not aware of that you should, that I should be aware of? They're going to have answers for you and they're going to be great answers. And that can set you off on a whole new path. And another way that I do think you can do, and this is another way I've discovered books is if there's an author that you are really into, learn more about that author and what books they love. That has led me on amazing, like snowball effect. Like uh, one of Terry Southern's favorite authors is Henry Green, one of his heroes of literature. And I only learned about Henry Green because of my obsession with Terry Southern. And I have devoured everything by Henry Green and love everything by him. Mm. And he's not, it's funny because they're nothing alike. Their styles are nothing alike. It's not like another Terry Southern or something. Um, 
But that, that sends me on, like, it's, it's, you know, the rabbit hole that we talk about with YouTube. It's the same thing. You can do that with books. Yeah. You can just keep clicking that next level it's, until you find yourself so far removed from where you started, but in love with what you found. Goals for the future, things you're thinking about besides uh, the hipsters? I mean, unfortunately, I, unfortunately, this is just, my brain is only, only about books. So, um, you know, I've got a book called um, Silver Skin by Javier Calvo. That's um, just this, and it's translated by Mara Faye uh, Lethem. And it is just literally a trippy read, mm. but it's just so much fun and it's so wild. And uh, it's going to come out, it should be coming out around springtime as well, around the same time the Hipsters does. Again, this conversation was recorded in late 2020, so Silver Skin is now available. That one I'm super excited about. He's uh, Javier Calvo has only had one other book published in English, which is a travesty because he's just crazy badass author mm. that everyone needs to know about. Um, and then I've got oh, I've got a two book deal with this Bengali author um, named uh, Manaranjan Bayapari, and um, amazing author. Uh, this is the first time he'll be uh, his books will be appearing in North America. Um, and uh, that'll be I'll be publishing one of those in the fall of next year. Uh, and then the follow up will be in spring of 22. Um, but revolutionary stuff like we're talking about uprisings of the people in prisons and, and fighting for people's rights is fiction. But it's just a really just badass call to arms of, of taking ownership of your life. And then um, another really exciting book that'll be coming out in the fall that I'm doing is a book by Blyden Jackson, who's this tremendously cool author. He's, he, he died a few years back, um, and um, this is a novel that he was trying to get published before he died. And um, it's this really kind of thrilling adventure, not adventure, but a thrilling read. Um, this guy had this really, really cool, um, Again, I, I really deal with kind of renegade lit, and and I and this this author's work fits the bill. But Blyden Jackson, um, he's got a book called For One Day of Freedom, and that's that's the novel that I'll be publishing of his, and that'll be also next fall. And again, these are books that like these are books that should be coming out by the big houses, mm. and they're not. And um, you know, I can only do what I can do to promote them, but uh, other than commit really every element of my life to making sure they get read, which is what I try and do. The Regular People is a production of Once Upon a Westler. This episode was produced, engineered, and edited by me, Calvin Marty, and I also composed and performed the music. You can find a bit more information about Gabriel and Anti Book Club on our website, irregularpeople.show. And that'll do it for Irregular People, a 2020 podcast. Stay tuned for more from me, Calvin Marty, and this production company, Once Upon a Westler. It has been a pleasure, and I hope there are better days ahead for all of us. Truly. Thanks for listening. Keep listening. Do you have a favorite color? Hmm. Oh, God, I don't. Has anyone given you that answer? No, and I appreciate it. <laughs> okay, good. Perfect, we'll stick with Because it's totally okay to not have one. <laughs> and you it's said so it true. perfectly. I just think I just flashed back to being in the DePaul 
gym about to play you in racquetball when you're on speed and you're going to break your fucking ankle. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> oh, man. But that's for another podcast. <laughs> I, I agreed. Um, and one I've never asked anyone, but I feel like you definitely are the right person to ask. Mm. If you could name this episode of my podcast on which you are the guest, what would you call it? The Degenerates. Excellent. The Degenerates. And why? Uh, because I'm I, I'm over here, or we, uh, well, <laughs> uh, I, I think because um, I talk a good game and I get all up in arms about it, uh, and I think in the end, I, I ultimately just feel like just like this low life punk, just kind of ranting and raving, you know, at, at you know, society and, and its rules. And it's like, you know, does anything good come of all this blustering? I, you know, I don't know. So I always feel like a degenerate. And I feel like even when I rant and rave like this, um, you know, it's just like, all right, you know, I'm just that guy. You know what, man? That makes me so happy because... That's how you were when we were young, strapping <laughs> little fucking artists in college. And Quite strapping, yes. <laughs> we were very strapping. Um, <laughs> I've just really come to terms. Actually, I haven't come to terms with it yet. I'm in the process of attempting to come to terms with the fact that I don't believe we ever really change from the core person we are like at a certain Mm -hmm. when you hit you hit 17 or whatever and then like that's who you are forever oh man i mean yes but i do hope i've developed somewhat but i think you're right perhaps oh you're right though that 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 whatever that that was that you that you had in you that stays with you i mean look it's the same with it's to tie it back into like the catch and release of books like i don't need that physical book anymore it's in me i've read it it's in me yeah. I, that book is part of me now. And whether I remember it or not, that's not the issue. It, it's, it's influencing me somewhere inside, even if I'm not cognizant of it. And that's part of the piece that I'm at of letting go of books. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think I would agree that there is a core of us that, that is just who we are straight up from a young age. And I, it's important that we work on developing and improving, hopefully, or finding new avenues to, to grow from that. But that doesn't mean we're no longer that it just means there's more more on top thanks calvin yeah thank you so much and thank what's your girlfriend's name uh, aparna aparna well, thank her she's please. doing podcasts all the time this is the first time she's had to step around mine <laughs> so right. so she's gonna so she'll listen to your episode then even though you won't she might she actually might <laughs> might be the only time might be the only time she really listens to me um, <laughs> 